Jim Barry has a problem. Too many good ideas. The last thing I need now is another good idea, you know. Listen to the music. Don't worry if you think it's not for your age group. It's not for Jim's either. He's 59 and he's making money out of this. To be coy about it, he's making money out of what teenagers are doing in their bedrooms. It's a good story. How a fella from Port Leash who's almost 60 can make something out of this. Along the way, he's using words like pimp. Well, it was a Ford Escort to be pimped up to make it look appealing for the current generation. He's talking about mad inventions like air guitars. Well, I did some piano when I was a young fella, but it was all Beethoven and Bach when I wanted to play Elvis Presley. You heard right, he's inventing an air guitar. I always like music. This is my revenge. This is my revenge. And to top it all, the Christian Brothers. That ruler there is Fitzgerald's ruler, and if you look at that there, 1895. Bar Girls. A girl would dance with you for a Singapore dollar. This was very strange. And the ambidextrous paradigm. As you can see, they're three foot by two foot. Oh, and one other thing. His work colleagues are three of his five children. Cormac. I'm setting the whole mix to a global tempo, so. Cullum. It's a really good kind of advertisement as well for the product. And Katrina. We do events at skate parks and theme parks. Sometimes this, they call me the locksmith, you know, that I'll only open the box that I have the key for. He's an interesting man, is Jim Barry. As you'll hear, he has a restless curiosity with a broad view of the world. And at the end, there's a grand little surprise. Jim's dad was a prison officer. Always think of the pension, he said, but Jim didn't. The pension is important, said the father. The father was careful about the future, but not unadventurous. He was a very hard-working man, very ambitious man. You know, he studied at night. He did bookkeeping and accounts, you know, in the tech in Port Leash. When my uncle was being ordained in Switzerland, he was, you know, asked somebody about the language in Switzerland because he wanted to say something at the ordination you know, in the local language. And somebody said, well, like, you know, there's French and German spoken there. And he went off and he learned French and German. Jim's thoughts straight outside Port Leash too. As a young fellow, I would go to the library, take out the National Geographic magazines. I would see these exotic places. You know, I knew Hong Kong before I ever saw it. It wasn't that Port Leash in the 50s was a place to run away from. At least not the way Jim remembers it. We had great fun in the bog. We had great fun out in the fields. A crowd of lads from the school. We'd go out and thin beat. There could be 15 of us in the field. There'd be canatin and, you know, yarns and stories. What's canatin? You know, just, you know, 
practical jokes in each other and I don't know. It's probably a Western word, probably has some Irish connotations. You, you know, you're a ca- you're, but I've often heard people saying, you know, that fellow he's a canat. Did you ever hear? Did you ever hear that? <laughs> that fellow he's a canat. <laughs> you know, which was he was a he was a practical joker, a, you know, divilment, full of divilment. But things were changing subtly. The Christian brothers noticed a movement in the world. They introduced study in the school around my time where you had to come back and study from half six till nine o'clock, supervised study, which was very, very new. You know, I think they had that in, in boarding schools, but that was introduced in Port Leash. I think our year, you know, things were changing in the, in the town. A lot of people were emigrating and people were coming back. And People were coming back and saying education is, is far more important than... The education was far more Being able to work with your hands. Yeah, than labouring. And a lot of them, you know, that was really the only opportunities. People who left school in sixth class, you know, after the primary cert... So now there was a strong emphasis on, on the leaving search results. Jim knew he wanted to travel. He wanted to see the places in the National Geographic magazines, but he wanted a future too. He decided to go to sea, but not as a sailor, as a radio officer. I was 17 and I, I met a fellow who was in the Merchant Navy and he mentioned all these names, you know. You know, he was in Hong Kong and Kowloon and Japan, Yokohama, Nagoya, Kobe... You know, and I, I really said, I'd love to see those places. And I got a first-class radio officer's ticket. Why did you think radio was, had a future? It was electronics, and uh, people were saying that electronics was where the future was. Even in the 60s, were they? Even in the 60s. No, it was valve technology. I, I started with totally with valve technology. And did you get to go to the Far East? I did. I saw all those places. The first trip I went to, the first stop was in... Uh, in Aden, and then we went on to Ceylon, and then to a place called Port Swetnam in Malaysia, Singapore, Hong Kong. Um, and what did you do when you got off? Well, when we, when, like, with the radio officer was a great job, because once you arrived in Port, you were free, so you could go out and look at all these places. The Vietnam War had just started, I suppose, and a lot of the American troops would be recreated in in. Taiwan and Keelung and Keoshung, you know, there was bar girls everywhere. There was temptation everywhere. Mm. So, like, that was, that was a big shock, you know, to think that the world was like this, you know, coming from, coming from Port Leash, I suppose. But, um, there was no bar girls in Port Leash. There was no bar girls in Port Leash. There was no bar girls. I had never heard of a bar girl prior to that. You know, I've read, I've read books about the sing-song girls in Shanghai, and, but, like, I thought that was just made up. You know, and then to see the reality. What are the sing song girls? What well, they were bar girls. You know, they oh. would do a song, and I remember the first uh, thing I remember was we were in Singapore and we were in this bar, Toby's Paradise Bar, it was the name of it, and uh, you could buy a dance with a girl. A girl would dance with you for for a Singapore dollar, you know, and uh, you know a slow foxtrot type of dance. So like this was this was very strange. Did you? Did you I buy did. A dance? I did a bought a dance. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's all about that. After four years at sea, it was time to leave. I had an uncle, uh, he's since died this year, in fact, tragically. Uh, he was a priest down in West Africa, and uh, I just f- liked the idea of going down and visit him, and I ended up at a Nigerian company for a year and a half. It was supposed to be a three-month trip, but I ended up for a year and a half. I went South Africa, Australia, New Zealand all over the Mediterranean. So really, I, I, had, I had seen the world and I had met a girl that I subsequently married, so there was an attraction to come home. It was time to settle down, but where? I had applied for a job in RTE during an earlier holiday and I'd been called for an interview, but I'd just gone back when I was called for an interview. 
So when I came back, I wrote to RTE and said that I would be staying at home and I would look forward to applying again and could I be re-interviewed for the job. And they said, uh, you know, if I was available for the interview, they would call me back. I agreed with my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife, that if I didn't get a job in RTE, I'd got a job on a coast station in Albany, which is south of Perth, and that we would go to Australia under the assisted passage. But luckily, I got the job in RTE and I joined Engineering, Planning and Control. RTE was expanding rapidly at the time. Colorization came when we won the Eurovision with Dana. We decided to do an outside broadcast unit in colour. Then the studios had to be brought into colour. So, like, there was a lot going on there. While he was in RTE, Jim started a commerce degree by night. I was just interested to see that could I look at a balance sheet, could I look at a profit and loss. If I couldn't open the business sections of the paper other than just read, you know, what the, the headline article was. I really wanted to understand a bit more about the financials. Then, after a few years in RTE, it was time to move on again, this time into cable television. Was it not a terrible risk to leave a good job like a job in RTE? It was. In fact, uh, I met one of the very senior fellas on the day I was leaving and he said, you know, you're mad to, to leave here and go to that cable cable business, especially a start-up when there's such strong competition out there. And I said to him, Eddie, you know, I said, I'm going to give this my very best shot. And I said, if it doesn't happen, well, it doesn't happen. But, uh, you know, I'm very optimistic about it. And had your kids at the time? I had three. I had three kids at the time. What did your wife say about it all? Well, she was, you know, she said if she thought it was, you know, like there was, in RTE, you could nearly see where you were going to be the day you retired. But by the same token, the country wasn't full of jobs at the time either. I mean, you were stepping out into a bit of a wilderness, weren't you? You were. In fact, my father thought I was, you know, irresponsible really with three kids to do this. But um, I felt confident about it and the team we had put together were very committed as well. Someday the history of Ireland will have to include a piece on television. Not the programmes or the programme makers, but the transmission. While we were strenuously trying to distinguish ourselves from the British, the efforts we made to get their TV. It was battles on the streets there between RTE, you know, fellas cabling and our lads cabling and Marlin to try and secure an area. Like it was, it was. Uh, it wasn't physical battles. No, it wasn't a physical battle, but it was really territory. You know, territory, you know, secure a territory and and get signals on in the house. So the word would go out. We have the signal. We have BBC, and that would give you maybe support from from the local group. Jim and his colleagues were fighting for land in the new colonies of uncabled housing estates. We had to go out really all the time and try and canvas residents' associations to get them to support our claim for that particular area. How, what were the residents' associations like to deal with? Oh, they were very, very good. You know, they were very, very strong. They were interested in, you know, getting the best supplier for their area. After a while, the territories were all cable colonised. The company Jim worked for was bought over and it was time to move on again. But not before he picked up an idea. In the cable, in fact, interestingly, we had bought an IBM System 32 computer. In fact, we were the second company in Ireland to buy a mini computer. And really, this was a big break from the big mainframes to having some control over your own data input, your own output, and you could get it programmed then to provide the information you wanted. You could see a movement into the whole personal computer area. 
and that would allow computing to be available for smaller businesses. Jim never finished the degree in commerce. He may not have known a whole lot about computers, but he knew more than the customer. Also, he was in at the start and he had ideas about how they could be used. I decided then I would do something in the personal computer area and uh, put together some systems for pub control systems which would allow the pub trade to be able to control their inventory and be able to reconcile their inventory to the sale. Was there a time that you saw there was a need? I mean, had your family an experience in retail or when, when did you see that there was that need? No, well, it was a lot of, you know, there was a lot of articles in the paper. You know, there was a lot of, you know, a lot of press about the, you know the the whole retail environment. You know how did how you could get people through quickly through the checkouts. How how you could control stock. How you could reorder stock. Whether you had the right stock. And did so, you have to go to a bank and get money, or how did you get? Well, I had a few bob coming out of the cable, and then I I put a proposal together that that allowed it to be financed. You know, that developed on into rapid technology and then we brought that to the market in 1997 as a public company. Then, by the year 2000, it was time for Jim to move again, but not to retire. You're listening to Flux with Ronan Kelly. In this programme, Jim Barry. He should be close to retiring, but instead he set up a company with his children to sell, among other things, air guitars. While Jim was playing with computers, his children were growing up and playing at or with music. I'd often see two of my sons down there with a brush in their hand or a hurley stick in their hand and uh, they'd be mimicking a guitarist, you know, the old conventional air guitarist. An air guitar, by the way, is the guitar you play when you're standing in front of the mirror in your bedroom, miming to a song. It doesn't exist. But they really had no interaction with that. They were just singing along with the song. And I felt, you know, imagine if you could have some device that would simulate what the guitarists were doing and they just could hit the strings and they would get an output in response to their actions. An output that corresponded to the song they were listening to. So that's really where the air guitar thing came out of. I could see also my kids bought music mixing products which allowed them to be able to take pieces of, of, of their own content, loops and beats, and place them in a palette. But it wasn't really an experience that was interactive. They weren't involved in the, the process. They would have to anticipate what the sound at a particular point in the mix was going to be. So you were buying them all this gear, and yeah. they didn't realise this was R&D and that you were going to write all this off years to come, did they? No, they did not. <laughs> or did I know when I was spending all that money? This is a large Victorian house on Dublin's south side. Big steps lead up to the front door. It's the Barry family home. Downstairs in the basement, looking out in the back garden, is the office of HighAndies.com, the Barry family company. We've got your room here as well. You have indeed, yeah. This is where they develop and sell products for making music with computers. There is, yeah, but 
the stick axe, the pickaxe, and the AV8. Okay, and I'll come back down to you. Is that okay? Great, thanks, Jim. Okay, maybe I'll show you the, the stick axe first. Okay, so great. It's probably the easiest thing. This is Cullum, Jim's son. It's a handheld USB device that allows you to mix the audio and video in your hands. So you just simply assign loops, beats, video clips to each button, press the button. The stick axe is on the market already. It sells for 25 euro. It's a piece of silvery plastic in the shape of the letter T that fits into your hand. It's covered in buttons and lights. You plug it into your computer, onto which you've stored music, sounds, pictures or video. And then you can either drag and drop onto the You then assign a piece of media to a button or light on the stick axe. When you press that button or break the light beam, that piece of music or video plays on the computer. So if I simply press button A, you can hear now I'm actually making the mix with my hands. I'm going to press button B. So I'm now actually making the mix in my hands. I can bring in a voice. And the sequence and duration you press the buttons for is recorded. I can change the tempo of the voice. We're in the front of the basement in a studio where Jim's other son, Cormac, is working with a new product, the AV8. It's a mixing desk, again to be worked with a computer, and in this case where you can assign various media to the faders. There's all different loops and beats and uh, clips on, on different channels, but they're all at different tempos, so I can actually sync everything up to the one tempo so that everything sounds good. So if you put Bing Crosby and 50 Cent into that, could you get the two of them playing at the same time? You definitely could, yeah. That's the whole... I don't know... <laughs> I don't know if uh, it's going to be a big seller now. If I take the sink off, they'll all lose each other. Because they're all, they're all different BPMs, they're all differently set up, so. And then, then I just sync them all up. So that's what the software's doing. You know, then that's one of the main things that we've been working on, one of the main pattern technologies that it's finding everything it's finding the downbeats on all the loops and matching them all up so that they all work together the store here is yeah. doing it it's just really to support the retailers you have competitions going on outside and the kids in the office at the back of the basement jim's daughter is looking at photos of a new van they use to promote their products around britain it's a ford escort that's being done up with big alloy wheels and bumpers and that's not the word your dad used. It's been pimped up. <laughs> pimped up is a word you brought from what part of the country? I saw it. I saw a thing was Pimp My Ride, which is a programme on Sky where they bring in wrecks of cars right. and do them up and paint them up with right. metallic paint, put big speakers and all that kind of stuff in it. We used to do that in Port Leash in the 1960s. <laughs> <laughs> so, and, and you, they open up, the, you drive it up to a shop, the van. Yeah, and then we find somewhere that's going to be a suitable location. And then we can open the back of the van so there's all these big speakers and woofers and plasma screens on either side of the door. So then people can actually take the stick axe in their hand and begin mixing and see really what the product's all about. and have it that Beside Katrina, Jim has an electric guitar in his hand. This is the pickaxe, or at least a prototype. Well, this, is the, this is one we're working with at the moment. Okay. It's a normal-looking electric guitar, except that near the end of the neck is a metal plate covering the strings and it has buttons on it. 
The pickaxe is designed for air guitarists. Like I was an air guitarist myself. But the difficulty is learning the fingering of the chords. So in this manifestation here, there's 12 buttons on the neck. Each of the strings has an individual sensor for each string. So what the user can do is he can assign a chord to a button. When you press that button, the software assigns the notes of that chord to each of the individual strings. So if you strum it, it will play that chord as you strum it. Or you can pick the notes, the individual notes of that chord, and pick them and look very, very cute. We will have a line moving across the song, and it will tell you what's the next chord to be played. So you just press the button, so you don't have to learn the complex fingering. So immediately, sitting on the dock of the bay, take it out of the box, you're playing that within five minutes. That's cheeky. Well, it's another form of instrument. It really is another instrument. Like, why does somebody have to learn the difficult pieces? What they want to do is to play the guitar instrument to that song. So this is really bringing the guitar to the air guitarist, and he looks very, very good and comfortable. I developed this for myself, really. This is, this is something I wanted to be able to do myself, was to be, look like I could play a guitar and play it competently. So I'm looking forward to playing this competently in April. You know those fellas out there who spent years teaching themselves guitars and, and they're crying now when they think fellas like you can pull it out of the box and play as well, don't you? Well, they probably won't even play it as well as you would play it on this. <laughs> so they'll give up on that and, and move to this. Yeah. No move way. to the pickaxe. Forty years after leaving the sea, Jim is back travelling and so are his children. His products are manufactured and partially designed in China. Yeah, in fact, it's amazing. You know, I'm visiting parts of the world now that I visited in the 60s, you know, and uh, you know, that, that's also very fulfilling in a way for me because I've seen those changes, you know, I've seen huge changes in all the Asian countries. Now, you know, we go into parts of southern China that resemble Ireland in the 50s, you know, where electrification is just coming, there's new roads coming, water system, water treatment systems, and they're very limited, you know, areas. affects maybe 100 million people. There's another 1.2 billion people who are living in a different age and a different era. There's going to be a lot of challenges, you know, in China when people see the standards, in, you know, the cars, mobile phones in Shanghai and Shenzhen and these cities. No changes come to their areas. So I, I still would like to visit the, the, the very rural areas, the mountain areas, the remote areas, and, and just see what, what's happening up there. But the guy, the Thanks, Katrina. Just before I leave, Jim asked me to come into one of the upstairs rooms. There he has several pieces of framed art hanging on the walls. In uh, about 1984, I felt that it would be nice if we could have a piece of art that would reflect Ireland's contribution to technology and art. And um, I approached Robert Balla with a view to, you know, he, he would interpret... Ireland's contribution to technology and art in a way that would use the technology of printed circuit boards. So the base of the prints would have to be etched out from a copper sheet the same way as a printed circuit board would be. So in this one we're looking at here is called the ambidextrous paradigm, which is a play on the left and right hand side of the brain. And the, the, there's a male and female image which are woodcuts from Vesalius. And if you don't get a balance between the left and right inside of the brain, 
you end up with Hiroshima, which is in the middle there. So on the right-hand side, you have a clarinet, you have an image of James Joyce, you have a palette, you have an image of Leonardo da Vinci. Yes. And you have a piece of music. And on the left-hand side, you have a ruler yeah, and Leonardo da Vinci's signature. Yeah, but interesting, that ruler there is Fitzgerald's ruler. And if you look at that there, Fitzgerald, in 1895, he had stated that if you project a ruler through space at the speed of light, it would be effectively become six inches long. And that was, you see Einstein's head up here. Now, Einstein had recognised Fitzgerald's contribution to Fitzgerald all Fitzgerald was Irish. Fitzgerald was Irish. So these are some of the things that people generally wouldn't know. So, you know, we have had a huge contribution in art and in technology. And what I just want to do is to show some of those and to see that there's a balance, that we can't overemphasize technology and we can't overemphasize art. But we must have a balance in both of them. And maybe we've lost a bit of that lately in Ireland. Kids at coming out of school now, you know, they haven't, they're not complete. You know, I think they need a broader understanding of the world, read more, understand more about the arts, go to theatre shows, you know, more balance in education. But the image in the back is an actual printed circuit board. If you look at it there, it's an actual printed circuit board in a very large size. There's a very good story to this, in fact, is that, as you can see, they're three foot by two foot. Now, the challenge was to find somebody who could make a PCB of that size. Like, we hadn't really considered that when we, when we started it. So another, a friend of mine, James Malone, who was involved in the project, he was looking around to see where we could find a printed circuit board manufacturer who could do a board of this size. But the first question everybody asked was, what are you using it for? Like, it had no relevance to it. You could either do it or you couldn't do it. So in the end, anyway, he was talking to this gentleman in the north of England, and, you know, he's a very, very precise man. And he said, and what are you doing with this board, Mr Malone? And he said, well, we're thinking of making an Irish pocket calculator. That's the show. Thanks for listening. Go to the Flux page on rte.ie and you can see photos of Jim Barry and his products. And you can also listen back to the show again. If you wish to write, you can email flux at rte.ie or write to myself, Ronan Kelly, Flux, RTE Radio 1, RTE Dublin 4.